everyone, and welcome to Everyday Linux, episode 54, A Second Look at Security, recorded May 27th, 2012, and brought to you by Element OP Productions, elementop.com. Welcome back, everybody, to this special pre-Memorial Day episode. We're recording this on the Sunday before Memorial Day, so happy Memorial Day, and to those who served, who are uh, currently serving, thank you. And we salute you. Yes. And as always, my name is Mark Cockrell, and with me are Sean, uh, no, not Sean, that's a different show, are Seth Anderson, the gooey kid. Hi, Seth. Hey, Mark. Hey, Everyday Linux World. And the command line godfather, the horny little devil, Chris Neves. Hi, Christopher. Hello, hello, everyone. Are we having sadly, a good he day has or discovered, what? Sadly, he's discovered the effects <laughs> in Google Plus Hangout, so we will be seeing all manner of weird digital things on him. <laughs> but it's all in fun. Yes. If you're listening to this on audio and not watching the video, be thankful. <laughs> yes. Be very thankful. Okay, so first up, well, let's let's talk a little bit about Memorial Day. You guys got any special plans for Memorial Day? Uh, I'm well, building a goat uh, fence. Building go a ahead. goat fence. That's awesome. That's how you know you live in rural Texas. Yes, I today I bought the T-post I need so I can go hammer them down and string the wire and cut a hole in the existing fence to give the goats a lot of underbrush to eat and be happy for a while. Nice. There you go. <laughs> and Mr. Mr. Neves, how about yourself? Oh, well, I think uh, the big festivities is going on as we speak at my parents' place. We are having a nice, wonderful um, barbecue with all sorts of fun and games going on. So while they're having fun, I'm sitting here with you guys. Well, we appreciate that sacrifice there. And yes. and as always, as I do on any long weekend or holiday or random Wednesday, I'm barbecuing. Uh, it's gotten to the point where my <laughs> wife doesn't even ask me anymore. She brought home 25 pounds of meat and said, yeah, I invited these two families over on Monday. So, okay. <laughs> so I have, I have a, a huge honking brisket in the uh, smoker as we speak. And tomorrow we'll do some, uh, some ribs. And we'll have good old-fashioned Texas barbecue. Well, there you go. So I, I hope. I wish uh, I was down in Texas now, because I hear your barbecue is wonderful. You know, I'm, it is. <laughs> I don't like to toot my own horn, but uh, I I think it's pretty darn good. In fact, I'm kind of a barbecue snob, uh, and I try to be you know as honest about it as possible. But I go to these places that are supposed to have the best barbecue in the world, and I think, yeah, I can do better. Uh, so, you know, I, I can do better once in a while, you know, they have to do it all day, every day for thousands of people. So there's a difference there. Uh, Jim, to answer your question, do I go any competitions? No, I never have. I will. That, that is something I will do at some point. Uh, perhaps when I retire, I'll do the circuit, buy an RV and be one of those guys. That'll be fun. <laughs> I could see you being the roaming barbecuer. <laughs> yeah, there's a whole professional barbecue circuit where people do that. You know, they travel 30 weeks out of the year and, and just go to barbecue competitions one after another. Yeah, but Sports and, Center still doesn't cover them. Dark's on it. <laughs> and there is much money to be made in that, actually. Uh, you can do, huh. uh, if you win regularly, you can make hundreds of thousand dollars a, a year off of uh, not just the prize money, but sponsorships and stuff like that. 
I think I'm in the wrong profession again. Yeah, all that for cooking meat, right? It's, <laughs> but, you know, these are the guys who are the best of the best. And maybe someday I'll stand toe-to-toe with them and, and probably lose. But, you know, I'd, I'd like to at least have the opportunity. You can say you stood toe-to-toe, so. Yeah. I have entered a couple of chili cook-offs, and uh, one second was the highest I ever did. So, But my I'm better with barbecue than I am chili. You know, I used to uh, fancy myself a pretty good chess player until I went to like a chess club and played. <laughs> <laughs> and one game, I made them work to beat me. All the rest, they just smacked me around like I was a uh, I was pwned majorly. <laughs> so after that, I went. I know how the pieces move. Right, <laughs> and that's about it. You were using Bonetti's defense against me, huh? <laughs> <laughs> it's like. That has a name? I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah, I uh, one time the my claim to fame is I finished second in a chess in a citywide chess tournament. Now the city was uh, the tiny city of Wolf City, Texas, where I grew up, and there were only three of us that entered. So yes, I came in second out of three. So even in my greatness, I was mediocre. <laughs> <laughs> All right, and so enough of that. We're going to move on to uh, the, the the something closely, more closely resembling show topic, uh, and uh, I have to read some email that came to us from our friends Steve, Mc, our friend. There's just one of them, uh, and the world is happy. Uh, Steve McLaughlin, the door to door geek, and he sent me an email with a subject line of spoon. Yes, and anybody who yes. does that earns one million cool points. That's so, right. Uh, Steve, from this point on, you can do no wrong simply because you started an email with the word spoon. Not just spoon, but spoon! And if you don't know what that means, go now to Netflix and get The Tick. You can't stream it, but they'll send it to you. The Tick. Go get it. Do it now. Pause this. Come back a few weeks later after you've watched all the all the DVDs, and then you'll you'll be able to continue on. Okay, guys, I'll see you on a couple of weeks. <laughs> <laughs> so Door writes in and says, "Yes, yes, I am standing up for the pie, and yes, I have one. No, wait, I have two, and one is being given away. My question is, what can it not do besides video editing, which is hard in Linux? I'll agree with that, with Mark on that." Um, it's a full computer. It can run a full desktop. It can run Debian. Note that anything submitted to be in any repo for Debian has to be available for all architectures of Debian. So it can run anything you can run on a desktop. And it does have a 1080p output. With that said, one of its main facts that make it appealing to me is uh, now when, if they can keep up for the demand, of course, every kid in school can have a real dedicated computer. Every third world town can have a real computer. Every household in the USA can have a computer that can do email or, hell, even voting. This is not a replacement for a laptop, desktop, or tablet. This is its own device whose goal is to help make computers more ubiquitous without relying on companies like Apple or Microsoft to develop something, good or bad, uh, and then charging insane prices with the combo of locking us into having to buy only more of their own products. I know, I know, no matter what this email says, Mark will still say it's a useless device. I will just state that this is opinion, not fact. Honest fact is, uh, wait, is we really, I think he was distracted in the middle of writing. The this. honest the fact, honest fact is, is, we really don't, thank you, is we really don't know if this device will impact anything. 
But dang, other manufacturers are sure trying to jump on the bandwagon. And he lists uh, five different manufacturers who are making a an ARM-based Android PC for less than 100 bucks. Uh, what he's responding to is either last week or the week before, uh, I was not disparaging <laughs> of the Raspberry Pi, but said, I just don't get it. And so he's telling me, it's a computer stupid. Okay, I get that. But it's a rinky-dink computer. So uh, and maybe I'm just a hardware snob. I'll confess to that. I'm okay with that. And yeah, you put it uh, in terms of like in uh, India or, or uh, South Africa where a computer is a big deal. All right, I get that. But are they going to have a 1080p display to plug it into? I don't think that's the way to fill this market. I think that, uh, you know, things like the OLPC and, and those are, are, are the better ways to do it. So the Raspberry Pi, I think, will never be more than a hobbyist device. That's my story, and I'm sticking to it. I think it'll be a good break-in device for this type of a system. Um, the Raspberry Pi may not be much, but what's going to come down, say, in five years? I think I think that's that's what he's trying to get to, is that, yeah, this is just going to be a hobbyist device now, but if the market keeps pushing it, what's it going to be in five years? Well, and, Google and glasses. That's, that's true of anything, because, I mean, the the the... Core i7 in a few years is going to be something, you know, minor. I, I can't remember the spec. I wish I remembered this, but this was like in uh, 98, 99, uh, when the uh, the Pentium 2s, Pentium 3s were all the rage. I read somewhere that the original 8086 chipset, excuse me, 8088 chipset, the one before the 8086, uh, had outsold the Pentium uh, that year. And the reason was it wasn't going in processors. It was going in blenders and toasters and your car and your fuel injection is being run by these things. So, uh, you know, sure, the Raspberry Pi is an ARM processor uh, brought down and, and super cheap. And, and I'm, I'm not uh, against that. That's a fine thing. But let's be uh, sure about what it is. If anything, this is going to be embedded in things in the future. This is not going to be your, uh, your desktop living room computer. It'll be my Dick Tracy watch. It might be. Yeah. That would be sweet. <laughs> the, uh, what is it, the Pebble watch that, that uh, is a Bluetooth device? Yeah, I, you know, uh, Dor, come back in three years, and we'll have a SmackDown, and if you were right, I'll, I'll give you a 12-pack of the drink of your choice. If I was right, you have to tell me I was right dressed in a tutu. <laughs> <laughs> and a six pack because if he's giving you a 12 he at least has to get you know the, if you're going to give him a 12 he at least has to give you a six okay i'm okay with that in a tutu though that's the important <laughs> part yeah filmed for the entire internet audience to see <laughs> the scary thing is door would do it he would he would he would say you dare me i'll do it well that'd be funny <laughs> <laughs> so what do you guys think about the the raspberry pi are you bullish on it i'm gonna say no because neither of you bought it right right well i'm um, cheap personally i'm I think a it's gonna be a breaking device seth what are you saying i say i'm a cheapskate and poor so that's really no just because i haven't bought it doesn't really say much you're so poor uh, you can't even afford a what is it 50 bucks or something it's cheap yeah, well, what am I going to... I mean, I use my computer now to play solitaire and push stupid things on Facebook. So what do I need that for? <laughs> Actually, the Raspberry Pi is the perfect device for that. Yes. 
It would be. Yeah, but so okay, when my laptop and my netbook and the six old desktop computers I have all bite the <laughs> dust, then I will buy a Raspberry Pi yeah. so I can play uh, useless games and waste time on Facebook. The, the no, thing is, on, on any useful device, it's the display that is more important. Not necessarily the display, but the I.O. you you right. got to have some way to get stuff in and get stuff out. And the Raspberry Pi doesn't have any of that. Now, you could say you know that the, the Core i7 doesn't either. But that's why they're sold to people to put in computers you know but the but raspberry pi is being sold as is as if it's all you need and it, it just isn't well i you know in today's at least i can't speak for the rest of the world but in the american culture of today it is doomed to failure and hobbyist role because we want better we want more we want faster and we want shiny and because this is something that this could be really cool if you want to invest some time in it versus ooh an iPhone ah you know so the the iPhone ah is going to people are going to overspend for a tablet when the only stuff they do on a tablet is the exact same stuff they could do on a netbook for half the price but they want the shiny tablet um they could do everything on a pi for a fourth of the price but they want the shiny tablet and not just the shiny tablet the expensive tablet that says you're garbage if you don't own me so well, I disagree with your statement there, Seth. They can't do everything they can do on a Pi. They can do way more because the Pi doesn't have a display. So, you, you know, you're not going to carry a monitor around in your back pocket like you would uh, if you had an iPad or an iPhone. Right. But that's why I say it would take a little bit of work. And who's going to put in work today, really? <laughs> the the geeks end. of the world, the hobbyists. Right. Yeah. And you so, know, I, go ahead, Chris. I was going to say, you know what, this would be a good, uh, I could see the Raspberry Pi being in a kitchen, being your digital cookbook. No, you know, you no, no, you're not going to see the Raspberry Pi. You're going to see an appliance based on the Raspberry Pi. Right. You're going to see well, an no, ARM-based appliance. Right, right. But I think that would be a good pl- a good use case for this, you know, the Pi device. I mean, think about this in an education setting. Every classroom you go into has 30 monitors. And then every student has a Raspberry Pi. And so they go in there, they hook it up to the monitor and the keyboard mouse thing, and they do their work. And then the next class, they disconnect it, and they go on. I mean, that would be an awesome use, but because it's a different paradigm than either the desktop, the laptop, or the tablet model, nobody's going to invest to do that. But to me, that's super. that's a lot cheaper than, you know, like a netbook. Or a tablet. Yeah, I can tell Dor is listening to this episode on his way to work right now. He just paused it and is calling me to leave me a voicemail right now to tell me how (laughs) wrong I am. I I just know it. But, I mean, what do you you think about that situation, that scenario I laid out? Is it, would that not be a good use for it? Um, I'm ambivalent to that because by the time you've built the money, because uh, by the time you spent the money for the infrastructure, you got to have networking there at that point. You got to have storage because the Pi doesn't come with any kind of storage. By the time you've done all that, it's uh, almost an afterthought to put a computer on the desk. Okay, but yeah, so I think it would be really cool. I just think it's doomed to hobbyist role. 
and I don't doomed is not the right word there. That's a cool thing. This puts power in the hands of the hobbyist that they've never had before, and this will be fast tracking. You know the next uh, entrepreneurs out there, and that's cool. Uh, and what makes it special, as opposed to say the Arduino, is that it's already industry standard stuff. You already know it's already Android. It's already out there. It's got a much better uh, user base than the Arduino, even though they already had the hardware nut cracked a long time ago. So in that respect, I think it's a good thing. I think for prototyping, for development, uh, for hobbyists, it's great. But I just don't see it ever being a commercial commercial success in any way. Yeah, I agree with you, Mark. I don't think so either. It, it's it's going to be in the hands of the hobbyists, and who knows what's going to come out of there. But that there again, we're looking at five years down the road. All right. So yeah, we've got a got a while to see who's right and who's wrong, and, and who is dead. Uh, to uh, continue on with the uh, Princess Bride references. Um, Seth, news, take it, go now. Okay, well, this first one is kind of a... Uh, Chris, I put this in here just for you. Because we uh, You're always talking about the humble indie bundles. And so what this is, is it's already started May 24th through June 1st. Um, there's tons of places that... Um, Direct from developers, you can buy games instead of having to go through like uh, an app store or marketplace type thing. So it gives the developers the chance to charge what they want to for the games. It is becausewemay.com. It's like a it's like a game sale May 24th through June 1st. So even when the show comes out on Wednesday, you still got a few days to go look at it and just see all of the different games you can get and look and see if you're a game in person, take a look at it. Um, I thought it was a cool thing when I ran across it, and I wanted to pass it on to our listeners. So that's your valuation from Everyday Linux. What do y'all think about that? I like the idea. We'll see how well it takes off, though. Yeah. You know, just this on a slightly tangential note, uh, I downloaded a ROM of one of my old favorite games, Dune. Remember Dune? Wow. The turn-based strategy game? Yeah, I, I I found uh one of those ran it in a in a a DOS box emulator, and totally robbed myself of a pleasant memory because I was oh, playing no. this thinking, my gosh, this game sucks, and I used to love it. I spent hours on it day after day. I loved it, and I'm I and today I just ruined it. I ruined that memory. I can never <laughs> have that memory again because now I remember I'll I'll remember how much it sucks. So uh, you know, good old games and things like that. You know, maybe it's just best not to let, let good memories be. That's my <laughs> advice for you this week. It depends on the game. Some of them I will go back and play. I still go back and play them. And then there's some of them. It's just, yeah, let the memory die. Yeah. Another thing I used to love in when I was in high school was the Ultima series. Uh, and this was back, you know, like Ultima 1, you know, back way back. Um and I just, I tried that and the, the 8-bit sounds and the, the, the cheesy 8-bit graphics. I was like, oh, I used to like this? Really? And, and I used to think, wow, this is such an immersive experience. I feel like I'm there. <laughs> <laughs> and now you look at it and go, why? Yes. Why? <laughs> and another old game. See, I did this, uh, I did a few. An old game I used to love called Thexter. 
Dexter, you were a little transforming robot that you fly around and shoot things, and and some things give you energy, and th- some things don't uh, take energy from you. And the whole thing is, you when you run out of energy, you you die. There's no lives like you know in, in other things. You you get one one robot, one Dexter, and that's it. Um, but it was back in the days when it was common uh, for a game to not have any save state. Because that was difficult mm-hmm. to do. So if you were on level fifty-four and you lost your your energy, you went back to level one. And you know, I was sixteen years old, and you had nothing but time to play this game. And I never beat this game back then because of that. At this time, now that I'm forty years old, I didn't get past level two uh, and kept having to go back. So you know, th- things sometimes nostalgia is best left alone. Yeah, that sounds like one of those games that would be a controller breaker in my house. <laughs> I used to have a five and a quarter inch floppy with like 13 of my favorite games on it. Think about that. What is that? Uh, 720K back in the day there? Yeah. Um, yeah. And I had it security protected so that you had to enter a password to be able to use it. It was a little uh, script I wrote in basic because back then every computer had basic built onto it. So uh, it would load up just an auto exact file and load up a batch file. And if you if you didn't type the password right, it would erase the drive, which really it would just use the attribute command and hide them all. Um, but yeah, I was high tech back then. That was security, which brings us to the topic this week of security. See, you thought that was just kind of out of nowhere, but no. We're going to talk about how security has come a long way. But first, we have some Linux news stories uh, that Seth is going to talk to us about. Yeah, and the first one ties in really well. There is a new version of the Linux kernel that just got released. Linus uh, pushed it out. And among other things, it beefs up security and graphic support. Um, I don't know what else to say, but I know, Chris, you've been saying that, you know, it, your graphics experience a lot of times is kind of crappy. So now that there's a new kernel, that um, they kind of address that some. Yeah. Um, now, just so everyone knows, this is the version 3.4 kernel, um, yes. which would probably not be any of the, in any of the current repositories for your, you know, distribution of Linux, but it should trickle down eventually. Yeah, it's one of those, yeah, the new version comes out and then all of the major makers, um, you know, they'll get it in there at some update along the way or next version, you know. Um, I don't even know what kernel I'm running. It just updates every now and then. I don't ever pay any attention to that at all. I just yeah, know that my boot screen keeps getting longer. And well, that's one of the things. Linux has progressed now to where, you know, you don't need to know what version of kernel you're running. Most Now, I mean, of course, obviously when something goes wrong, but it's like, oh, my Linux is working, so I don't really care what version it's at. Um, yeah. So I think I think that's a win for the community whenever, you know, you don't, have to know that enable and of course some people would say that's a loss for the community i guess it depends on who you talk to and you have a link Uh, here about the google oracle patent thing uh oracle lost and lost big kind of yes uh the judge or i don't know if it was judge or jury they uh basically google they didn't just win they thrashed oracle and uh Oracle was basically kind of, I can't put, it's like, say they were swept in the finals. They didn't, they didn't even come close to winning. Uh, there was like 
what Oracle won was just a few lines of code that isn't even in the current version of Android. So I read somewhere where it was a they were they ruled for one hundred and fifty thousand uh, dollars is what they got out of this. So not even enough to pay the junior lawyers' research fees. <laughs> right. Um, and uh, you know, wow. I it, it's a victory for open source. I mean, it's a victory for Google. And of course, you know. I think in this time, I think Google was a side that was on the right. That's my, uh, I haven't really followed the case, but that doesn't stop me from commenting on it. Uh, well, if, uh, just to give you a heads up, if you, if you don't know anything about the case, if you've never heard of it, basically, uh, uh, Android runs on its own Google uh, virtual machine called Dalvik. They did do, excuse me. <clears throat> They didn't use any of Sun and now Oracle's code at all. They used their APIs. And they did the same thing that, like the Samba guys used to get to Windows. They said, all right, when I want to open a file, this is what the system sends. This is the API that I use to open a file. So I'm going to rewrite something on the back end that uses that API. API, if you don't know, stands for Application Programming Interface. Every, every application has to have some sort of API. Otherwise, you wouldn't be able to interact with it in any way. Uh, Windows has tons of APIs, and you need those. Uh, people, when when somebody writes a program, Twitter has an API. Otherwise, you wouldn't have a desktop client. It's basically said, this is the way you interact with my program. Here are the codes. If you want a file, this is what you do. If you want to send me a file, this is what you do. If you want to draw something on the screen, this is what you do. There's a set of instructions. So what Google did, what the Android team did, was they took the set of instructions and wrote their own stuff that was 100% compatible with Java. So it's not running a Java virtual machine. It's running Dalvik. But anybody who's written any Java at all, it's 100% compatible on Android. So that's why Android developers are Java developers. They don't have to be Android yep. developers. So Oracle came up and said, uh, you can't do that. You can't use our instructions and write your own code. Now, this would have been crushing had they won this. Because basically, it would have said um, the things like printing are now copyrightable. You know, if you have a print button, that's copyrightable. If you've ever written anything that interfaces with something else, you could be in trouble for violating somebody's copyright. So this was this is a big deal uh, in, in terms of, you know, where is programming going to go in the future? And it's a major win that Oracle was crushed on this one. However, they're a big company with big pockets, and they have their lawyers already filing uh, appeals. Well, yeah, and plus, right. you know, the... The guy who leads Oracle, what's his name, Larry something, he's uh, he's not a, Larry Ellison, he's not a, okay, you were right, I was wrong, uh, let's be friends from now on kind of guy. He's a, no, I'm right, and I'm going to prove it. Uh, so, this, like, this is not, this is round one, major victory for Google, uh, and it puts Oracle in a bad place for round two, but they say they're going to fight it anyway. All right, and uh, we've got a lot of stuff in the notes here, but we're just going to have to hang on to those for later. Seth, pick one, and uh, we'll we'll go on to the the actual meat of the show. Okay, I wanted to talk about um, China and Android. Um, uh, I learned something when I was uh, doing some research on this. Android devices have approximately seventy have approximately three quarters of the Chinese market. So um, because of that, there was a they had to approve the Chinese antitrust authorities, you know, 
America has their antitrust. Uh, the Department of Justice handles that. The European Union has their antitrust. And China also has their antitrust authorities. They had to approve Google's purchase of Motorola because, you know, like how Microsoft does something here in America and everybody says, oh, it's a monopoly and the government has to get involved. Well, in China, it's the Google Android operating system that has the near um, the near monopoly on it. And so I thought it was kind of cool that, you know, here, uh, Android and iPhone, they're kind of neck and neck. Uh, Android probably has a little bit better market share, but they're pretty close. In China, Android overwhelmingly is ahead with, you know, roughly three out of every four devices. And so China's antitrust authority had to step in and they approved the sale, but they wanted to make sure that Android was going to stay open and it was going to be free and open software. Um, so I thought it was just kind of a neat story. You know, other parts of the world, different flavors. Um, there'll be a link to it in our show notes if you want to take a look at it. And so, yeah, that's a, that's a big deal if you think about it because they uh, – um, I just totally lost my turn of thought. Oh, they already make all the hardware, right? All the hardware pretty much for all computers in the world are made in China. So they, they have that. What they don't make is the software, and so they're looking for something that is that works and that's open source that can run all the hardware they're building. They're not worried about making cheap knockoffs of stuff. They're already making it. So uh, I really think that this was not so much a bid to protect the Chinese citizen, but a bid to give the Chinese government power to, to make sure that they still have the power to make those cheap knockoffs because that's uh, uh, you know running their economy uh, in a big way. Yeah. Um- well, you know, it's kind of like IBM, you know, they had the the DOJ was involved with them for years because they owned the computer market here in America. And, uh, you know, it's I just it was an interesting story. I would really I think you should take a few minutes to read it, even if you don't really care about copyrights and you don't care about monopolies. It's just, uh, you know, to learn something new about some other part of the world. Good thing. Chris, any comment? Um, I think it's a great thing. Um, I'm curious to find out if there's any repercussions of it, but so far I don't think there's going to be any problem with it. All right. That's a salient con- comment brought to you by the GUI GID. Uh, no, Command Line Godfather. That's right. <laughs> uh, so this uh, show tonight comes to us from a listener by the name of Lance. And by the way, shout out to Lance. He has promised to make uh, an Element OP app for the Windows mobile operating system. So, oh, uh, good for him. Thank yeah, you. He's, he's a developer, and he likes our stuff. So he emailed me and said, uh, would you mind if I built you an app? And I said, uh, I'm going to complain about free labor. Why? Uh, so, <laughs> so yeah, he's uh, said he's going to work on that. So good on you, Lance. Um, and I need somebody out there who's an Android developer and an iOS developer to, to make me a good app. I, the, I have an Android app now, but it's not good. And I don't have an, uh, an iOS app at all. And I don't have the skills to do that. So if you're out there, if you're a developer or know a developer and you like what we do, uh, this is my official plea for free labor. I'm not going to pay you a dime, but I will give you uh, a hearty, heart sh- uh, heartfelt handshake and the eternal gratitude of my heart. And a free shout-out from us on EDL. You know what? I'll send you a hat. How about that? Ooh. Yeah. That's worth, what? what is it, $493? They're overpriced. I know. I'm sorry. But uh, the, the, that's my cost on those hats. 
So Lance said, uh, I'd like to uh, suggest a show topic for uh, Everyday Linux. Uh, Linux security, uh, such as listing security software, firewalls, antivirus, backup techniques, password management, etc. Just a thought. Now, uh, this is all, Lance is a new listener. This is all stuff we've covered before, but we've been at this for more than a year now. So it's probably time to go back and piece together some of our old stuff and look at it from a different way. So that's what this is. This is not uh, not just a recap, hopefully, but some new stuff uh, brought to you uh, updated uh, in a new light. So this is going to be all things security, not just firewalls, not just backups, not just password protection, but all of those things rolled in. Any, everything you need to know to be safe uh, in Linux. Hopefully. We'll try. Step one, don't run as root. Definitely. Actually, if you're using an Ubuntu uh, distribution, you can't run as root. They just made that. Well, it's possible, but it's difficult. So, uh, yeah, just don't. Don't do it. So, uh, the first thing we're going to talk about is firewalls. Uh, And I have... um, gone on record as saying that I do not use software firewalls in Linux or in Windows. So I don't have much to say on this one. We did a whole episode uh, called the Boris Box about hardware firewalls. Uh, But guys, what are your thoughts on Linux-based software firewalls? Take it away, Seth. You're first. I have a hardware firewall to me, when you put the firewall on the same box as the OS, then you're limiting the effectiveness of a firewall. So I really do not like them. I uh, I prefer to have the firewall has a separate device between me and whoever else is out there. So I don't run them either or either. <laughs> well, <laughs> I guess I'm going to be the one, the paranoid tinfoil hack guy here. Because um, all of my equipment, no matter if it's in, internal at work or at my house, not only do I have a hardware firewall in place, I also run a software firewall. Um, do you wear a, a pair of suspenders with your belt? No, I don't. Okay. I probably should, though, just to make sure they don't fall down. But <laughs> um, the reason I do that, because now I'm going to talk both from school and from home, because I've had experience in both of these. I had at the school, an infection that came in and it it bypassed the firewall. Somebody brought it in on a thumb drive, but because we had the internal firewalls turned on, it couldn't propagate between the machines because this is one of those that scans your network and tries to find open ports and infects that way. So that was one of those things. It was nice to have a protection on the inside of my firewall, not only on the outside. The same thing happened at home where I have a home business. A machine came in. It was heavily infected with, with crud. I didn't, they didn't tell me why it was coming into my shop. So me, of course, being naive at the time and go, well, I'll just plug this in and get working on it. If I wouldn't have had my firewalls turned on and all my machines, it would have spread to all of them. And it did spread to the one that didn't have a firewall on because I was working on it. So I'm all, I'm personally in the type where I'd rather have the firewall in place and have that one minor, oh, I forgot to turn open that port or one of those things, than have a chance for an infection to run rampant on the inside of my network. So which firewall do you use? And I'm, I, I know the answer because you just go to the repo for whatever you're in and click the firewall button, right? Well, a lot of them already come with a firewall built in. 
Um, like Fedora and OpenSUSE, for example, their firewalls, I believe, are IP tables, and they're turned on by default. So unless, or yeah, Fedora's is turned on by f default, and I believe OpenSUSE's is as well. I don't remember off the top of my head. Um, U Ubuntu does the whole, the services don't open a port unless you tell it to open a port. So that's like UPnP for Linux, I guess right. would be the easiest way to compare that to. Um, but yeah, especially with with since Fedora has moved to the dynamic firewall system where you don't have to restart anything, it just runs and you can add open you can open your ports as you want without reloading anything. Um there's really no reason not to have it running because once you have it running, unless you have a a, a reason that you know you're hitting a wall, you really don't even know it's running. Okay, so there you go. Um, they all pretty much are based on IP tables. They just have different uh, front ends yep. for, for the most part. And, and the, yeah, and the front end know, for Fedora is pretty easy to use. Um, it's literally point, click, done. But the Linux, um, Linux makes a great basis for a firewall, a dedicated firewall. You right. know, you take something like Untangle, which I, I love Untangle. Um, you know, it's not really... You, that would not be your machine that you're going to work on, but it makes a great security box to protect you from the rest of the world. Yeah, and there's, uh, you know, uh, Smoothwall and IP Cop, and, uh, you know, I just don't want to weave any out, but there's dozens of them, but that's hardware. Uh, right. That's another box somewhere at your gateway, and you yep. got to have that. Yeah. But you, you probably already have one in your router. NAT is a really good firewall just in itself. Just the fact that you have a NAT router at the edge of your network uh, eliminates you from a whole lot of stuff. But if you've got, you know, even the cheapest little Linksys uh, wireless uh, access point, you've got a firewall on that. So I, I rely on that. I don't. I turn off Windows and Linux uh, firewalls locally. And another hey. thing that we've got mentioned here that I turn off, and this is because I, I grew up with it, and I remember it back from the old days, is SE Linux. Uh, security enhanced Linux. Uh, and it is like a software firewall. It controls what every individual app has the ability to do internally, not even whether it uh, can control things uh, network wise. When they were first rolling it out, when I, you know, what was it, 10 years ago or so, Chris, uh, like that. that they first introduced it, uh, it was terrible. And you just turned it off if you wanted to get anything done. I have heard that it's come a long way, but I still have that bad taste in my mouth from the early days, so I've never used it at all. See, Seth, do you use SE at all? Nope. Are you a turn it off guy as well? Uh, definitely. <laughs> so they're here again. I might as well put my tinfoil hat on because uh, I leave it on, especially See since the SE troubleshooter that they've integrated into the system works so well for that one hiccup that you'll run into. Um, well, see, it's one of those, I thought performance. the SE stood for suck enabled. So. <laughs> that was a long way to go for a bad joke, Seth, but it was funny. <laughs> Thank you. All right, go ahead, Chris. I, I, I didn't hear it because it all broke up from my end, but that's okay. Um, and I lost my train of thought. Uh, performance. Uh, the troubleshooter. And That's the troubleshooter, right. Okay. 
the the SE Linux troubleshooter has come a long way. Um, it's now one of those things where if you do run into a hiccup, it alerts you saying, "Hey, we just block this. If this is an okay thing, run this command, and you'll not have this problem anymore." Um, I think in the entire time I've ever run Fedora in the recent releases. I think the only time I've ever actually seen the SE Linux troubleshooter pop up is when I had Wine running. Um, that was it. Otherwise, it, it just took right along without even having a problem. Okay, um, so there we go. One vote for SE Linux, two votes for abject ignorance. <laughs> and another feather in the hat for SE Linux, it is being developed and, and worked with um, by the National Security Agency, the NSA. So maybe that might help you move to the SE Linux people because at least somebody is pushing on it. Yeah, I I think most geeks, and, and maybe I'm just uh, trying to overgeneralize because I'm like this, uh, is that we're uh, problem-driven. Until we have a problem that SE Linux would have prevented, we're not going to use SE Linux. Until we have a problem that our software firewall would have prevented, we're not going to use it. Uh, at least I'm not. And and I know I'm not alone out there because there are other lazy geeks uh, out there as well. So, you know, I'm not saying it's bad, but I'm saying it's uh, a higher level of security than I personally am interested in. Right. But that also brings up another thing called App Armor. It's basically the same idea developed by a different set of companies. Um, OpenSUSE has this on by default. It's built into your Ubuntu desktop. It's just not turned on. But you didn't know that, did you, Mark? No. Yes. App Armor is in um, the Debian profile. So you can turn it on if you want it, but Ubuntu turns it off by default. <laughs> With good reason, I would imagine. Because they're well, all about making things easier, right? That's yep. Ubuntu's primary purpose is to make things easier for the non-technical user. And things like SE Linux and App Armor and uh, and internal firewalls don't make things easier. They make things more difficult uh, in general, right? Which is why they have it off. But you know, the people that are security, or if you have a high um, a high security driven job that you need these type of profiles turned on, there are available and they do meet a certain security criteria. Where I work, we, um, we deal with like credit card payments. The company does. So we have to adhere to something called PCI. And part of the PCI requirements is you have to have a software firewall on the machine. And in XP, the XP firewall didn't meet the PCI standards. So they went with the one provided by their um, antivirus suite. And when they turn it on, it works so well. It could, the antivirus software couldn't even update. It blocked everything. <laughs> I mean, everything. As soon as it enabled, boom, you were standalone. You couldn't hack that thing. You know, the NSA wouldn't have been able to hack it because it blocked everything. Um, which was, it was just, it's kind of funny and we love joking about it. I, as much as I hate the company, I don't want to give them the bad publicity, but. It was kind of funny. Yeah. So, it, you know, it was it Norton? Go ahead. You can say <laughs> no, it. Was it Norton? No, no it was Sophos. Okay, the good. company, I, the antivirus I've hated most of all the ones I've dealt with in the Windows world. Okay. McAfee. No, I used to work for McAfee, and I like their business product. Their consumer product is utter garbage. But 
<laughs> I, I hate them all, them. and I just use uh, now security essentials on Windows. Uh, so that moves us into the discussion about antivirus. Another thing, I don't run on a Linux machine, and I run minimal on Windows. So, uh, like I said, security essentials on Windows, it doesn't do much, but it covers the most of the bases. Uh, the reason I don't run anything on Windows, uh, excuse me, on Linux, is because the architecture of Linux makes it very difficult to get infected first, even more difficult to spread an infection second, and it's such a small um, slice of the market that only the very dedicated, only people who use Raspberry Pis would be interested in using in writing a virus for Linux. So, you know, I'm just out there, you know, with my my goodies hanging in the wind because I trust that it's that I'm safe uh, for those reasons. Ali, that sounds right. like another company's official <laughs> line. I, I can't think of the name of it now, but... <laughs> Um, I mean, are, are we talking about Linux or are we talking about Macs now? <laughs> well, they are they are kissing cousins. Yeah, I know, and you know, I don't run it on uh, I don't run it on my Linux machines, but I do like to throw the caveat out there: there are known exploits for Linux, and you know, there are security updates for a reason. Uh, I I don't run one because. I don't do the thing. And of course, I mean, I'm just like you in a lot of ways, but I give it lip service. I just don't run it. <laughs> yeah. Do as I say, not as I do. <laughs> I, just, like I, I say, um, no, I say, if you, if you choose to not run it, no, there's a possibility of infection. And I have run, uh, uh, clam AV, uh, which is more of a scanning engine than an antivirus. And it pretty well stays out of the way. They don't, you know, the the vi the antivirus stuff I have used in Linux didn't get in my way. So it's it's not really that they are troublesome, and that's why I don't use them. I just, you know, I like to live dangerously. Yeah. Go well, ahead, Chris. So, not, so now this is where the tinfoil hat guy ridicules us all all over again. <laughs> Actually, for the antivirus for Linux machine, um, I don't tin run tinfoil hat and no pants. That's Chris Neves. <sighs> Something like that. <laughs> But like for an antivirus, I really don't run one for Linux. Um, when you're talking a Linux mail server or a file server, there's a chance for it. Um, just to keep your stuff cleaner. You know, the, they do make a company, you know, the Avast and Bitdefender, ClamAV, AVG, all of these companies. And I think there's a few more that I missed. But these companies do make a Linux, ins a Linux installable version of their, their software for a reason. Most of the time, it's for a mail server or some sort of gateway appliance. And it, like you said, Mark, the vector is very small for an infection in Linux. There are they, there is a whole bunch of them out there, but uh, you know who's going to aim at the little guy? Jim Honestly. in the chat room says the only reason to run a Linux antivirus is if you, you routinely talk to Windows machines. Touche. Well, touche. Yeah, I could I could see that. The other thing that's nice about running an um, like I run a mail or an antivirus on my file server that all my students at the school touch for the simple reason that, okay, they're saving everything there anyway. If I'm scanning all that stuff, I keep my network clean. Yeah. Yeah. And again, that's, that's what I do too at the gateways. 
Uh, and I consider a file server a gateway. That's where that's where things come in and things go out. At your firewall, at your mail server, on your web server. I run an, an antivirus on my uh, web server uh, just to you know to keep things out. But on my my everyday use uh, Linux desktop, I have never uh, run a, a, an antivirus as a as a principle. I mean, I've experimented with them, but I've never actually run one. I agree okay. with you. Uh, anything else to say about antiviruses? No. Play with them. Don't use it. I, I, I would play with them and, and know how they work in case you ever have to use one because they don't work the same in Linux right. as they do in Windows. So That's I true. would play with it a little bit just so you can get your hands on, you know, your feet dirty because you never know when you might need to run one on your box. I'm going to skip over, for the interest of time, the backup section. We've talked about backups before. Um, we had did a whole episode on backups, where you keep your stuff. We could talk about, uh, you know, uh, just everybody raise your hand if you use Dropbox. Oh, yeah. Okay. Google, Google just, Drive. Just use Dropbox thing. and Google Drive if you don't need much data. Set up an R-Sync server somewhere if you need a whole bunch. So we're just going to skip over that. And go um, do something... I Go, Chris, I, I want to say one more thing, though. Um, no, I'm sorry. I, I declared no, this topic dead. No. Good day no, to you, sir. I, no, I, uh, no, I don't think so. I want to say if you're looking for something simple to set up a backup, if you're new to Linux, take a look at Back in Time. It's a nice user-friendly backup service that is incremental as well. It uses rsync as the backend. So if rsync is too you know, nuts for you to use, take a look at Back in Time. It makes rsync a little simpler. So, uh, time machine, back in time. No, nothing derivative there at all. No. I wasn't going to make that point. I wasn't going to go there, Mark. You had <laughs> to bring that up. Uh, backups are important. Make backups. We, we hereby officially declare we are in favor of backups. We're just not going to spend a whole lot of time on this episode talking about them. Uh, so, password management. How do you keep up with all your passwords? In a secure fashion. That's a big deal, particularly for the non-sophisticated user. The grandma, uh, you know, the the Aunt Betty, the, the people that the listeners of this show are likely to be supporting. That's a big deal. How do you do it? Um, KeyPass is a good one. KeyPass is uh, really very little more than an encrypted notepad, but yep. it does keep up with your passwords. Uh, Chris, you want to talk anything about that? You know, it's changed so much than the last time I used KeePass. I really am not at a liberty to divulge too much into it. I know it works. I know there's a lot of people that swear by it, and it's on a lot of different devices. They come on pretty much every platform now, um, Windows, Mac, Linux, Android, iOS, if I remember right. Um, I used to use KeePass until I forgot my KeePass master password. Yep. <laughs> and then your host. <laughs> That's that's why I I moved away from KeePass as well. I I had a big nasty monster and I forgot it. <laughs> but the one that I use, and I'm I'm gonna bet that the other two guys on the panel use as well, is LastPass. LastPass is uh, free for a lot, twelve bucks a year for a lot more. Uh, I pay the twelve bucks a year for it. Uh, my wife and I were talking the other day um, about the bank account. And uh, banking online. And she said, you know, I, I need the password to the bank account. I need to get in. And I said, I don't know it. 
So what do you mean you don't know? I've never known it. I have no idea what the password is because it was generated by LastPass. And when I log on to the bank website, LastPass fills it in for me. I don't know what it is. That's what I think passwords should be. That's secure right there. You could torture me forever and I would never give up the password because I have no idea what it is. I'm um, with you, Mark. I'm with you. Um, I'm also a LastPass members card holder as well. I, I pay my $12 blood fee every every year and I'm happy for it. I have no problems with it. I'm actually thinking about adding another license copy to my store of license holds that I have for my parents and my wife. So, yeah. Yeah. So just, just to tell you what it does, it's a browser plugin uh, that when you go to a website, it says, hey, I, it looks like you're filling out a form. Can I generate a password for you? And we say, why, yes. Yes, you may. And so you click generate and it spits out 14 characters of utter gibberish, fills it into the website for you, and then you click OK. Then the next time you go back to that website, it says, oh, I know the password to this website. Would you like me to fill that in for you? And you say, why, yes, I would. And it fills it in and logs in for you. And so that's all there is to it. Uh, if you need to know where that is later, it stores everything locally on your machine in a, in a password vault so you can get into it and, uh, and look up a password. If you have to copy it or whatever, you can do that. The 12 bucks a year gets you the mobile version. So you for your Android, your BlackBerry, your iOS, all the major platforms out there, they have a mobile version so that you go to a website and it will do that whole autofill thing on your website. Or you can just have it have your store of passwords. And it doesn't have to be store uh, passwords. You can store any arbitrary data uh, in there. You can store your – it can do form filling. So if you're filling out a form and you just type, you know, LastPass says, hey, I know your address and your phone number and your email address. Would you like me to fill all that in for you? And you say, why, yes, I would. And it does all that for you. And it's all super encrypted. Uh, LastPass doesn't know the information. It's Nothing is stored on their server. It's all stored on your server, on your desktop locally uh, in an encrypted fashion. And then they sync that encrypted blob of junk up to their server so that if you go to another machine you've never been on before, uh, it copies it. You can go to the website and log in and see all your stuff, but it doesn't get encrypted until you enter your password all they have is just a, a chunk of nothingness uh on their server so it's super secure it's super easy uh and it's 12 bucks a year i mean come on why wouldn't you do that and they're very proactive there was a small hiccup they found in their code they you know published hey we found some little glitch Make sure you have your past stuff backed up. We're going to fix it and deploy an update. And they were right on top of it. And we're very, um, what's the word? Where you're proactive. Thank you. Very proactive about you know the finding these bugs. And if there are reports sent to them, they actually fix it before the exploit really hits hard. So, you know, support them. They're good company. Rateo in the chat room says, geez, dude, you make it sound like Clippy on, on the, from Microsoft. No, it never taps on the glass, and it doesn't do any fancy uh, things. It, it really stays out of the way, um, and it's the first thing I install anytime I install a, a new machine. It's the first plugin I do, and then I never know what my passwords are, and I don't have to know. It's all done. I have a good password for LastPass. 
And uh, you know, if you're if it's your own machine, like the machine I'm on right now, I have it remember my password. So yes, anybody could come in here and have access to all my stuff. But if I'm out at, at my work computer, for example, that is shared, I don't do that. I have to t enter my password every time I want to uh, log on to that. But you enter it one time per browsing session, and you never do any more passwords from there on. And you don't yep. run into that issue of, I've got one password across 50 sites. You literally have a unique password for everything, um, and LastPass knows it and you don't. Hmm. And you can make it as hard and as difficult as you want. You can say caps and lowercase and numbers, symbols, funky symbols, you know, 53 characters or whatever the number you want it to be. And it just, there you go. Yeah, and what I have run into a number of times is uh, LastPass will generate a password more complicated than the website will accept. Yeah. Uh, and that frustrates me. Like my bank website, for example, uh, it can only be 11 characters, can't be any longer, and you're not allowed to use punctuation marks. So it's alphanumeric and, only, uh, and you can use uh, numbers and... Uh, I think that's it. This is a bank. Uh, wow. Yeah, and so yeah, it, it frustrates me as a security geek, but on you know as a math geek, any math geek would look around and goes, "Well, that's something like seventy-three trillion possible combinations. Uh, it would take seventeen hundred years with the best uh, equipment on the net uh, on the world to uh, to be able to uh, cr crack that password." So uh, you're you're perfectly safe, and they're probably right. Unless there's a small hiccup somewhere in the coding that they use to encrypt your password, and then they, you know, unsalt the MD5 hash, and then they have it anyway. Well, yeah, that's that's <laughs> an issue. Storing my bank or, or any bank, if they store my password on their servers, that's a no-no. Uh, it doesn't matter how complex it is if it's stored somewhere in a field that says password. <laughs> But that's neither here nor there. Sadly, we have to wait for institutions of the world to catch up with that. Um, yeah. You know, uh, like Citibank, you know, they're awesome at that. PayPal is great. Uh, I don't know what their requirements are, but I think their minimum length, if I remember, is like 14 characters. I mean, it's got to be a big deal. Something like that, yeah. I just I just was forced to update my, pay, my PayPal password because it was, I generated it in the last pass, so I never, you know, I didn't think about it. And I got a note saying, hey, your password is X days old. You need to reset it. It's like, oh, okay. okay. <laughs> I've never I never received a message like that from PayPal. I mean, it was because I didn't log into it for very, uh, so long of a time, too. Um, I just know it, I got a notice saying that you need to reset your password. So, I went, okay. And so what you did is you closed the email and you went to www.paypal.com. Never click a yes, link I in did. an email, no matter how official no, no, it no. looks. You went to https colon slash slash yes. www.paypal.com. It doesn't matter how official the email looks. Never click on a link in an email to do any password stuff. You go to the website. Or anything in general. I don't click a link on principle. Um, you can send me all the links you want. I will hand type each one in. Yeah, don't copy and paste. Yeah. Uh, so th that, you know, while we're talking security, let's talk about the, you know, the security between the keyboard and the seat. Uh, don't be <laughs> stupid <laughs> about that. And something like LastPass, I tell, you know, the school where I work, I encourage my teachers to use LastPass. I would pre-install it if I could, but that's just not something you could do because every user has to set up their own account. Uh, because that keeps them from writing a post-it note that says password is grandma and sticking it under the keyboard. 
uh, don't do that. And yeah, so just a quick primer. And this is hard to do in audio on how to build a good password that is secure and that you can remember. Uh, Think of your favorite lyric from your favorite song. Use the first letter of every word in that lyric and the proper punctuation. So let's say your favorite lyric is, uh, well, Chris, go. Favorite lyric of your favorite song. No. <laughs> no. Um, How about uh, happy birthday to you? Well, that might be a little uh, simplistic. Let's go with um, um, all around the cobbler's bench, the the monkey chased the weasel. There you, so go. There you go. So, so you you do a a all around t c b the cobbler's bench t m the monkey c t the weasel. That's ten characters. You start with a capital A at the beginning, because it's the beginning of a line. You end with, uh, say, an exclamation point. So now you have uppercase, lowercase. You have 14 characters total, plus a punctuation mark. And you can remember that, right? Um, Maybe. You know, the wheels on the bus go round and round. T-W-O-T-B-G-R-A-R. No, so it doesn't, it doesn't have to be difficult to create a really good password that you can remember. Uh, the you know password that's right it's it's all about how long the password is not how random or how much gibberish it is so you yep. can have a really secure password that you can easily remember so there you go the you know the favorite favorite line of a song favorite uh, uh, poem um, you know Bible verse you know uh, Tommy can you hear me you know T comma C Y H M question mark for those of you back in the days of sticks, uh, so you know it doesn't it doesn't take much to come up with something. Uh, one mine has one time I used silly rabbit tricks are for kids, capital S R T A F K exclamation point. So I had seven characters, uppercase, lowercase, and punctuation. Yes, thank you. It was the who, not sticks. Thank you. Um, of so it, it you know it doesn't have to be anything just what you'll remember uh look that around is like way too hard is it it's too hard you wouldn't do that no i and, pick one uppercase one lowercase one number one symbol and then choose a word like dog and put the haystack on the beginning and the end and boom you've met all the complexity requirements and you can have dog you can have cat you can have a different see, password for every here's what's great time. about my method. You can have a post-it note on your desk that says, Tommy, can you hear me? And so now you just got to look at that and type the first letter in the punctuation. So you don't have to remember anything. You can have your post-it note that you love so much, but it doesn't mean anything. There you go. Okay, so that's my quick little sermon on how to come up with passwords you can remember. Not simple, but things you can use. Remember, that's the important thing. <laughs> Rateo says, for every letter in a normal word, press one letter above it on the keyboard. I've seen people do that, too, uh, but there's there's algorithms that figure that out. That's going to be brute force pretty quickly. Yep. Uh, you yeah, need to go listen to uh, that. Steve Gibson's podcast where he talked about the, um, what was that, the, the square thing he developed. Yeah, the, uh, the uh, what was it? Something squares. I don't remember what it was. But yeah, the, the, dance, it, the, the dancing squares. Latin, Latin, Latin square. square. That's it. Latin, Latin squares. 
So yeah, he password haystacking. Yeah, he came up with the phrase password haystacks. Uh, But you know, anyway, that's just my little thing there. Pick your favorite poem, your favorite song title, um, you know, something like that, and just use the first letter, and and you can come up with a really complex password that would take billions of years to crack, and you can remember. You can even write it down. Just write the sentence down. Yep, I tell everyone the same thing because everyone will have a different idea of what their favorite thing is and if you're doing your last pass password you can have you know as many i, I don't think there is a character limit in last pass is there for your master pass i've never hit it if there is yeah i haven't either and the last one i generated was like 54 characters or something like that. <laughs> okay so that's that's our quick look not so quick, really, at uh, uh, security in general. These are general security tips. Lance, I hope that answered some of your questions. Uh, And Christopher, what is your command line tip of the week? Well, it's an easy one today. Uh, I thought, I know I've covered it before, but I figured, you know, I might as well add a little spice to this one. It's one that you, if you're a command line guy like me, you're always in the command line making directories, and so you always use make dir. Yes, because I, I do that daily. In fact, I make dir, uh, you know, in the morning as soon as I get up, and usually when I get home from work. Yeah, yeah. I make I dir mean, at least once a day. Anyway, it's MKDIR, and it stands for Make Directory. Um, with these extra switches that I'm going to tell you about, which is the hyphen P and hyphen M, you can actually do more than just make a single directory. You can, if you use the hyphen P, Ha ha, guys, get your minds out of the gutter. <laughs> Seth must have gone to some place totally different because he's he's really cracked up here. Yeah, poor Seth. He's broken. Broken Seth. <sighs> Hyphen P. <laughs> so anyway, go on with your make dir. Anyway, <laughs> um, the hyphen P option gives you to do the, the whole, it stands for make parents for parent directories. So if you're making a directory that says slash home, slash Chris, slash downloads, which is going to be there anyway, but you don't have holding slash SH for a file you're downloading from the internet, it will actually make the, the ending directories that weren't there to make to start with. So if you're making a folder for your exports from your firewall so you can keep track of your logs, but you want to put them in a folder that's down a few levels, you can use the hyphen P to make those levels without having to go make their or MKDIR, whatever the folder is, and then CD into the folder and do the same command again and again and again. Um, it, it simplifies your folder your folder tree creation. The next, the next switch is the hyphen M option. The hyphen M gives you the ability to change the mode of the folder. So if you wanted to only let certain people in to a folder, you can change the um, the the yeah uh, the folder's permissions, the Linux permissions. So you'd be using the schema, or it, this would be like after you make the folder, you could use schema or chmod to change the folder's permissions to something else. With the hyphen option, you can do that in one command. Remembering that. 777 is a bad thing. Don't use it. 
Are you done? But, uh, I was just I was just waiting for silence so that I could pay attention again. <laughs> did I did I go too geeky on you guys? That uh, okay. See what I do is I fire up Nautilus and I right click and I say new folder. Uh, you know, however right. you want to do it is fine. Gooey good. <laughs> so. But if you're a, if you're doing it from an SSH terminal, then I guess you're good to go. Right. Well, the M option is kind of nice because if you're not paying attention to where you are, you might not be able to do, uh, or you wouldn't be able to do a folder creation anyway. But if you're trying to re make your um, your password folder for like your, oh man, I'm just forgetting everything tonight. You've got Forget too many it. commands stuck in your brain. I do. I do. I, I must have too much stuff in my head today. But yeah, anyway, it, it's it's they're nice commands to have. Those they're nice switches to have in your pocket in case you need to have do something. Okay. Um, my wife just popped in the chat room and said, I need you to come help super glue my little kid's head wound together. That's not something you see every day. <laughs> so the, nice. seeing that I am needed there and we're wrapping up anyway. Uh, so, <laughs> uh, Seth, what is your uh, end user tip of the week? Well, I thought I would uh, throw some educational flavor in this week. And if you've ever just wanted to learn about coding or programming, codeacademy.com is a place to go. You can learn. They have courses and stuff there. If you wanted to, uh, like, sign up and see if you uh, see if maybe you like, hey, I want to be a programmer. How hard could it be? Well, here's some classes you could take to see. Oh, I don't like that hard. Um, I think, uh, you know, if you, if you like Chris's command lines and you think, you know, those sound kind of cool, well, here you can learn them and a whole lot more programming stuff. It is codeacademy.com. You can sign up, you can learn, and you can be the next programmer extraordinaire. Awesome. So maybe I can learn how to build my own Android. No, I'm, I'm never going to do that. But if you want to build an Android app and you don't have saying on how to do it, you know, <laughs> go to Code Academy and learn. Uh, and you too can be a uh, a programming person. Awesome. If you want us to answer your question on the show like Lance did, you can do what he did and email me at edl at elementop.com. That will go to all of us. We will, I will, actually, I think he used the contact form on the website. That works, too. That goes to me, and I send it on to uh, the guys. Uh, but the, the key thing to remember there is elementop.com. Go there, uh, the, hop in the forums. There's a forum there for show topics. You can put your thing in there or just anything else. And uh, we do stay on top of that and read that. Uh, as I mentioned earlier in the show, apparently Uber Geek in the chat room didn't know. There is a store there. So if you want to buy some swag and support uh, the uh, Element OP network uh, with your clothing, you can do that. Uh, click the store button. Also, if you're going to be buying anything through Amazon, click the Amazon button there. Uh, and uh, they'll give me a very small... Uh, portion of your purchase doesn't cost you anymore you don't see anything different they just add a little web cookie yes they're tracking you uh to your shopping purchase and if you make a purchase i think it's anytime within like 72 hours we get credit for that so uh i'd appreciate that if you set that in your bookmarks every little penny helps uh and guys anything else 
Thanks for no, stopping by. Have a good and safe holiday. Excellent. So thanks for listening, everybody. We look forward to your feedback, um, and we uh, hope to have uh, many more listener-generated topics in the weeks to come. But for now, I will simply say that ends this episode of Everyday Linux. Everyday Linux.